What a a day so far, right? You could hear the goodness of God through prayer. That's awesome. You could see graduations today. That's awesome. There's always a weight that comes up here whenever you share the word of God. I don't think Mark or myself or John or anybody who shares this pulpit takes that for granted. And after 20, nearly 21 years here, you know, I don't get as nervous as I used to get when I came up here. There's, there's a naturalness that comes with speaking everybody. But every once in a while, something will cause and, and cause you a little bit more pause than normal. Right before I walked up here, my daughter grabbed my hand and said, have a good sermon today. That just puts more pressure on me. I'm just saying. <laughs> so my prayer is it's a good sermon, but not because of what I say, but because it's the word of God. So we are going to continue our study in Mark. Uh, we got our introduction this last week, and we just started to dive in. And the title of this sermon is called Modern Day Pharisees. Modern day Pharisees. You know, the first three chapters of Mark, you hit the ground running. I mean, uh, Mark was, uh, Pastor Mark, was right last week when he was talking about this. Mark is just there. Boom. This is it. There you go. Most of the briefest accounts, not all of them, but most of the briefest accounts of what happens in the Scripture happens in Mark. He just wants to get this out because Jesus is coming soon right? Soon and very soon. Amen? And so what happens is, chapter one, we get thrown in, and I mean, like 20 verses in, we already know that Jesus is fulfilled. John the Baptist has already come. He's fulfilling that role. Jesus has already been baptized. He's been sent off into the wilderness. He's he's now calling his 12 disciples. I mean, he's just moving. It's just like, boom, 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 boom. I'm just going to tell you who Jesus is real quick. He goes in, he's, he's healing people, people are talking about how popular he is, so, so much so that he can't enter town. Chapter 2, we get in and he, there's more healings that go on. All of these things are pointing to, this is the one I want to talk about. Chapter 3, we see some of the same things, and chapter 3 kind of ends... After this whirlwind beginning, right, with Jesus' mothers and brothers who have followed him, they're like, man, he's gone crazy, right? And so they're there, and the crowds are around him. Somebody from the crowd yells out, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are, are outside. To which he says, who are my brothers and sisters? I'll tell you who's my brother and sister. He who does the will of God, that is my brother, my sister, and my mother. This is how this whole section ends. And very appropriate, in my opinion, right? As we get to it. In the middle of this section, we get introduced to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. We can see that they're going to be the opposition in Jesus' lifetime. And it kind of begs the question on what a Pharisee is, right? Whatever a Pharisee started out to be, by the time Jesus had come into play, they were something totally different. 
A Pharisee as a religious leader was somebody who wanted to hold to the strict sect of the law. And as a result of that, they would create traditions that would help people do that. I remember a uh, story a long time ago that was shared with me. Maybe you've heard this joke. Maybe even Pastor Don has shared this joke. I have no idea. So if this is plagiarism on Pastor Don, he's in the audience. He can talk to me afterwards. Um, But there's this story of a, a daughter who had been making ham. They would always cut the ends of the ham off and throw it away. It was just a strange practice. And as a result of that, that strange practice, her daughter asked, said, why do you cut the ends of the ham off? I mean, the ham tastes good and everything like that, and you, and you throw it away. I don't understand it. Well, that's how my mom taught me. Oh, okay. So she goes and asks her mom, and her mom says, I don't know either. And she goes and asks her mom, and her mom says, oh, honey, when, when we were growing up, our stoves were so small, the whole ham couldn't fit inside. It's funny how traditions get started, right? Traditions that you and I add sometimes may have the right intention, but can go off the rails really quick. I think with the Pharisees, what we have is we have traditions that were created originally for the right intention, but over time they had lost its purpose. And in losing its purpose, they started regarding the traditions more than actually the Word of God. I can't tell you how many churches fight over the stupidest things. I've heard of church splits over carpet, over lights, over not having my name recognized or whatnot. We just did name recognition. That's not, I hope that doesn't include you. Nothing that has to do with the Word of God, whether it's pride or ego or tradition, because it's what we've always done. It could set itself up as a barrier to the Word of God and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Today, we, when we talk about somebody being a Pharisee, we're talking about somebody who's a legalist, right? We're talking about somebody who's so strict with the law, there's no grace in their life, number one. And number two, they're so about the rules. You were just a Pharisee. Name gets thrown around a lot. Why did they get this reputation? That's what we're going to look at today. That's what we've looked at in part this week. So turn with me to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be reading from sections of Mark chapter 2 and Mark chapter 3, really focusing on the Pharisees. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had, he had come home. So many gathered there, so that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. He got up, took up his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Going down to verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have them with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, a new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And he said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3, verse 1. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, and some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal them on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. And he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was, made, it was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Verse 20, and then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them out and spoke them in parables, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. 
In fact, no one can enter the strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, and then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. So I want to read all of those interactions of Jesus and the Pharisees kind of in order because we see this progression that starts in chapter 2. Chapter 2 Jesus talks to a paralytic, and in talking to the paralytic, he says, your sins are forgiven, and he recognizes that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they're looking at him saying, this man is blaspheming. He is saying something that is not true. He is saying something about God, about himself, that can only be true of God, and he's not God, therefore that's blasphemy. They'd already made that determination. Jesus, knowing this is what they were thinking, asks a simple question, which is easier to do? To tell a man that his sins are forgiven or to tell a man, stand up, pick up your mat and walk, but so that you'll know that the Son of Man, which is a title, by the way, it's a title given to Jesus that you find in Daniel chapter 7. He's identifying himself all along the way on who he is. He's saying very clearly and plainly to know to those who know the word of God who he is. So that you will know that the son of man has the authority and the power to forgive sins. He turned to the paralytic and he said, "Take up your mat and walk." And he did so in front of everybody because only God can do that. See, sin is the malady. Sin is the malady of all sickness. Sin is the malady of all death. Sin is the malady of all suffering. And only God, who is sinless, can overcome both the sin and its consequences. Jesus showed that he was both. He gets talked about concerning fasting. Why aren't your, why aren't your disciples fasting? Well, because the bridegroom's with them. I'm, I'm here. When I'm gone, they'll be fasting because I'm not here, at least not physically. You and I fast because we, we want more of Jesus during that time. You guys realize that, right? That's the whole reason you and I fast. Our fasting is desiring something after God more than desiring sustenance. And if you guys watch the devotions this week on YouTube, which all of you can find, one of the things that I, I want to push back on a little bit there has been a cultural appropriation of this idea of fasting in any, every, 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 any and every area of life. Like I can fast my television shows. Now I can give up my television shows, but that's not fasting. I can just be honest with you. There's not a single reference in the scripture that doesn't tie fasting with physical eating. Not a single one. Can't do it. Can't find it. So saying that you're going to fast from television might be a great thing. You might want to dedicate that time to God and saying, instead of doing that time, I'm going to treat it like fasting is supposed to be, right? But it's not a fast. A fast is saying, I am so wanting God, I'm willing to deny myself sustenance in order that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's denying yourself that food so that you're saying, I'm seeking after God. My rumble in my tummy is the reminder to go to God in prayer. 
So I want to just kind of clear that up. Because guess what? The Pharisees were fasting. Other people were fasting. The disciples of John were fasting. They weren't with Jesus. So I have, I have just a small, you know, inference from this. There probably isn't going to be fasting in heaven. You know why? We're going to be with Jesus. Because we're going to be in the presence of the bridegroom. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, but the Pharisees didn't see it that way, did they? They'd already determined that Jesus wasn't the Son of God. We go to verse 23. That section right there, guess what happens? They're, they're eating grain. They're hungry. They're walking through the fields and they're picking grain. And this comes down to, guess what, more of the traditions of the Pharisees who had tried to quantify, quote-unquote, what work is. Because you're not supposed to work, right? You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So there's only so much you could do. And picking heads of grain, oh, you're working. How dare you work? That would carry over into the idea of healing somebody on the Sabbath. That Jesus could heal somebody on the Sabbath. And that would be considered breaking the Sabbath. Who's the one who heals? Seriously, who's the one who heals? God is the one who heals, right? You're going to tell God he can't heal on the Sabbath? Really? That, that what we're going to do now? You guys beginning to see? The Pharisees have made a determination about who Jesus is because of the traditions that they have made that actually obscured who Jesus was. Most of them didn't get it. Right? I mean, Paul, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, who he would describe himself that, he didn't get it until Jesus revealed himself straight to him. It's so far off the map he was. Very few of the Pharisees are coming to Jesus. Got Nicodemus at night. You got Joseph of Arimathea, who are secret disciples outside of that. You You don't see any other names in the scripture. The Pharisees have so set themselves up against Jesus because they've made this determination, not based on the word of God, based on the traditions that they've grown up with that colored their view of the Word of God where they could not recognize when Jesus had come. And I find it remarkable that they do two things in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 at the end of the first one after he heals on the Sabbath, they determined how they might kill him, how they might destroy him. And being so bold and so sure that Jesus was not the Son of Man, the promised Messiah, Son of God, God in the flesh, they would go so boldly into blaspheming the Holy Spirit, saying that he casts out demons by the power of Satan rather than the power of God. I want you guys to think about that for just a moment. Everywhere he's going, miracles are being performed everywhere. People are being healed. He's proclaiming himself to be the Son of Man. 
very unashamedly. And the Pharisees, who would say that they're serving God, have come to the conclusion that he must be destroyed and that he's following the power of the devil. All because of traditions of men that they use to circumvent the word of God. Want proof of that? We're going to spoil a little bit ahead. So let's turn to Mark chapter 7. Starting in verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw that some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? And he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside your commands of, the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses says, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if, that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever you might have otherwise received from me is Corban, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down... Many things like that. This is how the Pharisees got that reputation. They have taken and distorted the word of God so they cannot recognize Jesus, the one who has come from the scriptures today. And we're warned in the scripture that we're going to have many such people even today. I dare say that those of you who are graduates, those of us living in the culture today, we have more to fear from modern-day Pharisees, I think, than necessarily the culture around us. I'll explain why in just a moment. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. First three verses. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories that they've made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. We're promised in the Word of God that just as there were false prophets back in the Old Testament, there were also and are going to be false teachers from where? From among you. 
that are going to introduce destructive heresies that people are going to believe. And why are they going to do that? Because it's easier to believe in tradition than it is necessarily to follow the Word of God. You know, Mark and I, we have talked over these last five years about why it's so important to know the Word of God. The statistics are mind-shattering when you think about it. Only 2% of the current generation that my daughter, who just graduated, is in, have a biblical worldview. But just as telling, only 2 to 4% of their parents have a biblical worldview. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And a lot of this happens because you know what we do? You and I regard people more than we regard the Word of God. If I asked you guys how many books you've read this year, many of you will say, I've read 10, 12, 40, 80 books, like Mark. Um, And we're familiar with all those books that we like, right? Whether they're fiction or nonfiction or whatever, they help us with our business or they're about politics or whatnot. We know all of that, but we're not near as in love with the Word of God itself. And so what gets us in trouble is we end up following people rather than following God and His Word and what His Word says. We're not familiar with the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, how many times does Jesus say, you don't know the Scriptures? I keep thinking and then talking to the Sadducees, you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God, right? You're supposed to be Israel's teacher and you don't know this? How can you not know this? You're supposed to be teaching other people. Hebrews chapter 5 and chapter 6, he talks about, you know what? You, you should be teachers by now, but guess what? We're having to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again because you're unfamiliar with it. And I could probably go around the room and find out from you who your favorite author is. And there's nothing wrong with favorite authors. And there's nothing wrong with favorite teachers. I don't want to go too far on the overboard side over here, okay? But you and I should be evaluating our teachers in the light of the Word of God, not the other way around. And what happens so many times by so many people is they become followers of people and it takes them away from the Word of God so that when those heresies are introduced, they fall into error. And why do they fall into error? Because they follow this person who's created these rules and they created, oh, these are the seven pathways to life. And so I follow these seven pathways. Never mind that four of them are against the Word of God. Because they were such a great teacher. Such a dynamic person. Second Timothy. Chapter Chapter three. Verses one through seven. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, 
conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. They're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Is that not the Pharisees? Always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. And I want you guys to understand what it says here. That these people who have a form of godliness and deny its power, it doesn't say you can listen to them and take the good from it and hope that you don't get corrupted by it. It says have nothing to do with them. There's a line in the sand that says this is what the word of God says. This is what you're saying. It doesn't line up with that. Either you're in error and you need to repent or I can't Listen to your teaching because where are you going to take me next? It's that type of teaching that will get you to a place where you don't even recognize your Lord and Savior anymore. So three things I want to leave with you today. As we consider modern day Pharisees, because there's a lot of them out there, A lot of them. Number one is this. There is no replacement for the word of God. There is no replacement for the word of God. God may grant me someday the opportunity to write a book or mark the opportunity to write a book. If you had a choice and there was only one book you could read and it would be Pastor Mark's or mine or the Bible, choose the Bible. Too many of us don't. Too many of us choose everything else. The lack of understanding of the word of God is what led the Pharisees to regard their rules higher than the word of God. Think about that for just a moment. No matter what good intentions there were, the lack of understanding of the word of God is what led the Pharisees to regard their rules higher than the word of God. Number two, We need to recognize when someone is questioning the inerrancy of the Word of God or trying to divorce the Word of God from the person of Jesus Christ. There is a lot of that going on today. There's a lot of people saying, Jesus wouldn't have said the things that are in the Bible. Really? Really? Right? Um, I don't know about you, but I read the Word of God. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Last I checked, the Holy Spirit's God. And and there's some implications that come into that. But please understand this. We believe that the word of God is inerrant. And when I say inerrant, I mean this. In its original given form, because you go, oh, there's these variants that are out there and I've done this textual criticism. Come on, I've been a pastor 21 years. You're going to give me that line? 
seriously as if I haven't studied it? Really? The scriptures as originally given were given by the Spirit of God using faithful men to write down exactly what he said. We have so many manuscript copies, we have confidence because of textual criticism that what we have is the word of God. That's important for you to understand. Because there are people out there who are trying to divorce that. As a matter of fact, there are those who will call themselves progressive Christians who are not Christians at all because they deny the inerrancy of Scripture and end up denying the deity of Christ. Modern-day Pharisees, because they've created their rules to subvert what the Word of God says. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 16 through 20 says this, Men swear by somebody greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. And God did this so that by two unchangeable things, which it is, what? What's that word? You didn't say that with very much conviction. What's that word? It's impossible for God to lie. We who have led to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who was sent before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I want you guys to understand something real quick. When you and I say that the scriptures are in error, we are calling God a liar. And he says it's impossible for him to lie. That he is the truth. And out of him comes no lie at all. Do we believe it or not? Because if we don't believe it, you know what we'll do? We'll create traditions to help us circumvent the things that God has said. We'll separate Jesus from the Word so that Jesus can criticize the Word of God. Jesus probably wouldn't have said that. I've actually heard pastors say that. They would call themselves pastors. I would call themselves heretics who are worm their way in and people follow them because they're a charismatic personality rather than somebody who's trying to be a faithful servant of the word of God. You guys, I'm telling you, you start seeing people messing with the inerrancy of the word of God, you run the other way. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power, have nothing to do with them. Number three. Oh, this is a hard one. Because it's what I'm doing right now. You call out when those distortions take place. Too many times you and I hear something wrong. You know what happens? We just want to be nice. We want to give them the benefit of the doubt. We don't want to be mean to that person who's sharing. And for so long we've played it nice. Not biblical. Nice. Nobody's saying you have to be mean. 
But we were so nice that we'll allow heresy to be taught in a classroom, in a pulpit, someplace else, and let them get away with it just because we don't want to besmudge their character, you know, we don't want to besmudge their character. Dude, if they are saying something that is against the word of God that are going to lead people away from Jesus Christ, you better say something. Because if you don't, guess what's going to happen? Sooner or later, maybe you'll just go along with them. Because you've gotten used to not saying it for so long. Second Timothy chapter 2, and those verses right before, because Second uh, Timothy chapter 3 starts with a but. There's always something that precedes a but. My wife would say it's me sometimes. Verse 22, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on our Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct. What is he supposed to do? Those who oppose him, what is he supposed to do? Gently instruct. Not stay silent, not be nice about it. I'm not saying he's being mean about it, but it's a gentle instruction. It's a gentle correction. Why? In the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. It's not enough to say that that's wrong in your head. Not according to the word of God. The reason we say something is wrong and doesn't line up with it is so that God might grant them repentance unto life in Jesus Christ. Because right now, whether they want to believe it or not, if they do not know Jesus and they're walking in error in that direction, they are a tool of the devil, not my word, his. And so many people with those loud voices like the Pharisees had convinced so many others not to listen to Jesus. Think about that. And the modern day Pharisees and the prophets that are around right now would tell you the same thing. And they are doing a bang up job. Right now, you guys realize that among Gen Zers, according to the latest Gallup poll, over 20%, 20.8% of them identify as LGBTQ plus whatever. Are we just going to be quiet about it? That has, number has nearly doubled in the last four years. Four years ago, it was only 10%. They're getting it everywhere, guys. They're getting it from the government. They're getting it from your entertainment. They're getting it from their schools. They're getting it from their friends. 
The sad truth is, the generation growing up right now probably knows more about sexual identity than they know about the Word of God. And these traditions of men will destroy our next generation. And it will destroy us if we follow suit by listening to the Pied Piper voices of these modern-day Pharisees who proclaim that they're doing the will of God by allowing all of this stuff to happen. And you and I have to have the courage to do these three things. Number one is put the Word of God above everything else. There's no replacement. Stop replacing it. Stop making your excuses. Can I just tell you, stop it. It doesn't work with me. Going through a five-year plan. We read less than 20 verses on average a day. There's no excuse for anybody who doesn't have three minutes a day to get into the Word of God, to be ready to walk into this place and dive in deeper, but we don't. Can such a faith save you? Or your children? There's no replacement. How are they going to recognize Jesus? How are they going to recognize the lies of this world if they don't know the Word of God? How are they going to recognize the deity of Christ? This was what the Pharisees missed, and so Jesus became the enemy because of their traditions, not because of the Word of God. Just the opposite. Can we stop being quiet? Start saying something. Can we recognize that the inerrancy of Scripture means that if we're not calling the Scripture inerrant as it is originally given, we're actually calling God a liar in all that He has said, that we think in what the Scripture says about God and trusting Him to be true in all the things that He's done and all the things that He continues to do in my life. There is no replacement for the Word of God. There is no replacement for who Jesus is revealed in the Word of God. And I will not be silent. It gets me into a lot of trouble with a lot of people. A lot of people wonder why I talk about the things that I do because I can't be silent. God is going to grant repentance to people who are walking away from Jesus because they're following the traditions of men instead of what the Word of God has revealed Jesus to be. I have got to plead with them to reconsider. And so I do with you. And to our graduates, I would say this. The only way you're going to hold on to faith is to hold on to Jesus and to be in the Word. There's no replacement for the Word. To recognize it as an errant and not to ever accept any sources that would try to compromise the Word of God as an errant. And to Lovingly call out those who are in error in hopes that they may be granted repentance unto life in Jesus Christ. See, the Pharisees thought they were the religious leaders of the day. 
and all of their teaching was only taking people away from Jesus and counting him as an enemy. There's much like that today. You and I would be do well to regard ourselves and to guard our hearts against these modern-day Pharisees. It only happens when you and I start taking our faith seriously. You want to see revival? Spend 20 years discipling your children. Not even joking. Because discipleship doesn't happen overnight. Stand with me. Maybe you, like me, are disturbed concerning where our culture is and where we're going. But you faithful believers in Jesus, it starts in your homes, starts with your children, it starts with your outreach, it starts with those strained relationships, it starts with calling out sin because it's truth that they might repent and come to know Jesus Christ. Playing nice doesn't save souls. It just lets them float along further down that river. Let's you and I be people who regard Jesus above all, who make the word of God the place that we go to evaluate things not use our books to evaluate the word of God. And trust that Jesus will shine out in the lives of ourselves, our kids, our families, and he'll be able to make a change. I promise you he'll use you. I promise you. You know why? Because I've read the word. Let's pray together. God, I want to thank you for today. I want to thank you for this time, dear Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus. I pray, dear Heavenly Father, that every single one of us would first and foremost regard your word above everything else. Because through your word, we learn about Jesus. The testimony of your word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, telling us when he's coming. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that we will be bold in our faith that we would accept no substitutes or compromise to the word of God. That when we see that, we, we just run in the other direction. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you will help us to lovingly call out sin and error. People are going to call us mean. They're going to call us hateful. They might even not do anything with us anymore because of the things that we say because they've tied themselves all up into these traditions and these lies of men that have drawn them away from you and they're being used as an instrument of the devil. God, I want to see them granted repentance unto life in Jesus Christ so I cannot keep my mouth shut. Lord, make, make it, may we all have that commitment and I know we fall short in it. But Lord, help us. There's a lost and dying world that needs Jesus.
may it begin with us. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.